This weekend, we asked a, a special guest to come and speak to you on one of the questions that was raised. And the question is, is the Bible sexist? And this special guest, her name is Michelle Tepper, and she is an itinerant speaker for Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries, R-Z-I-M. We've had speakers come from R-Z-I-M numerous times in the past, John Lennox, Michael Ramsden, Amy and Frog, or Ewing, and we're excited to welcome Michelle this morning. She travels all around this country and around the world speaking to people, so it's a real privilege to have her with us this morning. I would love you to give her a warm, sweetheart church welcome this morning. Would you welcome Michelle Tepper? I want to pray for Michelle. Before I do that, you have one of these uh, in, your, in your bulletin. It's a right back at you card. If you think of a question as you're listening to Michelle speak this morning, write it on that. Drop it in the purple baskets on the way out, and one of us on your pastoral team is going to respond this week through a blog post to those questions. But let me, let me pray for Michelle this morning. Father, thank you for Michelle. Thank you for the way that you have gifted her. I pray this morning that as she fearlessly declares the truth about the value of women that is written in the pages of our scriptures, that we would come to understand that every single one of us here today is, the, is beloved of God because we were created in his image. We have been called by him and we have been redeemed by him and we are now one in Christ Jesus. God, would that message come through loud and clear, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Alice. It is such a joy to be here in Chapel Hill. I have heard of your fame. I feel like a New Testament writer talking about churches that he's heard of. So many of my friends and colleagues have come here, spent time here, had times of rest, been encouraged by your body. And thanks so much for taking such good care of Rachel and Ellis and for keeping them on North American soil. I think that's very important. So well done. Well done, all of you. Uh, I'm going to jump right in because this topic is huge. Is the Bible sexist. Now, maybe some of you here today are going, well, it's not a huge topic for me. Really? Of course, they bring a girl in to speak on, is the Bible sexist? Is this going to be some sort of like, you know, new wave feminism that RZIM is trying to push down our throats? I'm not quite sure what I'm thinking, but let me say why this is so important. Even if you, as a male or female here today, have never questioned this, this is the number one hurdle for people outside the church, and people that maybe have been in the church for a while and got a message, got a message of our Bible, of Jesus, that said that because of who they were, because of their gender, because of something, they were less important, they weren't as valued. Quick personal story, I mean, I have been raised, the blessing of being raised in a Christian family, and my father is a pastor, but we come from a Sicilian-American background. I know those of you that are familiar with Mediterraneans. My name is Michelle. I'm the firstborn of the family. Just in case my father, Michael Angelo Modica Jr., didn't get a Michael. So just in case he was only going to have girls, he named me Michelle. My brother is Michael Angelo Modica III, so one did come along. But, you know, it can give even me a hint of, you know, in my family... My father, a man of God, it was so important to have a son. 
My father-in-law on the other side, first convert from Judaism um, into Christianity, and he used to tell me when I joined the family, um, you will only have sons. And I went, oh, I didn't know you were in control of that, but okay. And he said, I prayed. I prayed that my four sons would give me the 12 tribes of Israel. So you're only going, you laugh, but you know, as my husband says, every joke has a little truth, you know? So when I brought Sophia into the world, or God did, it was a joke. And of course, she's loved absolutely. But my heart always wondered. I wonder if she would have been of more value in the family, if she would have been like the grandsons that my brother-in-law has produced. And so you go, does the Bible give us this framework? Does it basically say we're equal and yet there's enough that means that even little social things like that, people question even from within the church? I was in India just a month ago speaking on this very topic and people were leaning forward, whether they were from Hindu or whether they were from Christian backgrounds because the things that they have seen one hour every day, each, each hour of every single day, there's still a woman in India burned to death. By bride burning. Unfortunately, people that have been in Christian heritages, families like that have still happened because it's so intrinsic in society. This is an important topic. We want to look at scripture today. We want to be able to stand up and say this isn't just our modern church opinion. The Bible hasn't changed. Is the Bible sexist? Why is this important? As Christians, we make the claim, if you want to know who God is, we look at the Bible. And so we have to, first off, clear up this claim, look at people's major hurdles, say, who cares if the Bible's sexist or not? Who cares how good of an argument you give this morning, Michelle? The Bible's not reliable, and it's not relevant. So I'm going to quickly dig into those first two foundational issues, then we'll look at a case study. Does that sound good? So, is the Bible even reliable? What does reliable mean? If you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, because I'm a little addicted after 13 years of living there, okay? It's consistently good in quality or performance, able to be trusted, a reliable source of information. You see, one of the number one hurdles we have to face when talking or arguing from the Bible or standing up for it is people's very common view of, well, even if what you say the Bible says is great, the Bible's been changed. It's like that game of telephone. You ever heard of it before? I played it at a party. Someone whispers it in one ear, and then by the end, all the children have it horribly, horribly wrong. Well, I was just talking to a teacher this weekend at a summer institute we were giving in Atlanta, and she stood up when someone made that claim, talking about the historicity of the Bible. And she goes, yes, when I play that game with my kindergartners, she said, often, the sentence I give them is changed. But when I am wanting to teach them about listening skills, I say, we're going to try it a second time. I'm going to give you a different phrase. If this phrase is not the same by the time you get through all 26 children, I think she said that she had, there's no resource, recess. The phrase is perfect. So she says, even my kindergartners can get it right when they know that the information that they have is of great importance. How much more 
the authors of scripture. And what we have in the academic field for our certainty that our Bible hasn't been changed is just amazing. I don't have time to go into all of it this morning, but we know that the Bible hasn't been changed like a game of telephone because of the textual criticism and academic work that's been done. The Bible has over 24,000 handwritten manuscripts in Greek, in Latin, and other ancient languages. That's just in support of the New Testament. And those dates so close to the time of writing that it makes us know that among ancient literature, the New Testament stands above for the evidence that it has not been changed. And because we have the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fragments of scripture, maybe some of your very intelligent brains are going, how is that helpful? Having all these different translations, isn't that bad? Isn't it bad that we have this version and that version? Because we have so many different translations from different parts of the world in different languages, it means we can, and it has been done, piece back together, almost precisely word for word and line by line, the New Testament specifically that we have to know that what we read today is exactly what the early church was reading. The few places there's little bits of change, we don't hide, we footnote them and say, in this earliest edition, it wasn't there. But because so many other texts have it, we're going to put it in. That's amazing. That is so sound with reliability. And the time of writing, as I already mentioned, is so close to the actual events. Nothing else in history that we accept as history, like Homer, like Caesar Augustus, the time of writing is hundreds of years afterwards. We are talking about two to six decades after the death of Jesus. We have recordings of the New Testament. We have outside sources that were not friendly to the early Christians, that were trying to write against them in culture, and yet they are arguing, not arguing for, but they are seconding the facts, the historical facts of people, names, places, the early church of God, and Jesus' life in Roman and Greek sources. And we have eyewitness testimonies. So is the Bible reliable? Really, you cannot argue that in any academic forum anymore, that it's not reliable. But then we have to ask that next question, even before we dig into, is the Bible sexist? So what if the Bible's reliable? Your Bible isn't relevant for me today. The Bible can't speak to things like the Orlando tragedy that happened two weeks ago in my own home. Absolutely not. I mean, we're dealing issues with gender. We're dealing with issues of feminism. We're dealing with issues of racism. How can the Bible speak today? The things that it says are horrible, exclusive, sexist, violent. That makes the Christian Bible at best irrelevant for our world and at worst divisive and dangerous. Have you heard that argument before? Have you wondered it yourself? Even if you read it faithfully going, how can what I read every day speak to my culture, to my life. You know, people commonly make the mistake of talking about certain Levitical laws or animal sacrifices or the mistreatment of women. And they go, see, your Bible's not relevant. But I would like to say it's a little bit like, and I wonder if any of us have had this experience on the other side of the fence, either with our children or grandchildren or friends or either with parents or grandparents. Have you ever watched a film or been on a Netflix binge, watching a certain show, and the entire show, all the episodes have been maybe intellectually robust, maybe current on the issue. Okay, and then that one episode, your parent sits down with you in, 
high schoolers, or you walk in on it, invite your children and go, this has been okay. This is appropriate for them. There's one episode and you're like, oh no, without context. This is shocking. This is horrible. I promise you the show isn't normally like this. We've all had that experience. And if you pull out random parts of the Bible, it can be a bit like that. Sydney White Crawford, the leading female archaeologist of our time, professor of classics and religion and gender studies at University of Nebraska, says this of this same topic. We often infect the Bible with our own values and morals, not really asking what the Bible's values and morals really are. Is the Bible relevant? We have to look at the entire canon in scripture. We have to look at the whole story of the gospel from cover to cover to make some of these sticky subjects make sense. But even if we clear up reliability questions, and even if we make a good case for why it's relevant today, many people ask, and maybe you have today, well, is the Bible really good news for everyone then? Is it really relevant for everyone, regardless of whether you're male or female? Maybe it's only good news as I thought possibly because I wasn't a Michael and Sophia wasn't another grandson. Maybe it's only fully good news for some people. The common complaint, charge against the Bible that being sexist, that definition sexism means it's prejudice, it's stereotyping or discrimination typically against women on the basis of sex. That's a very common question. But what I would like to claim to you today from my study, from what I have seen, from what many different commentators have said, and from the Bible itself, from cover to cover, is that the Bible's high view of women stands matchless among the sacred texts and historical documents, even though many think the Bible is to blame for most, if not all, mistreatment of women in our modern world. You might say, well, that's a wonderful claim, Michelle, but I'm going to argue straight from your own text. So what we're going to do with the rest of our time, we're going to dig into this topic of sexism, and I'm going to pull out some specific texts, but we're going to look at them. We're going to be honest, and we're going to ask this question again and again. Can we trust what the Bible has to say for our hearts today? And what about texts specifically like the Old Testament? In Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 13, this is a very common argument that's happening right now. You can see it on YouTube. They're actually taking Bibles, they're covering it and making it look like a Quran. They're reading this text out, and they're saying, look at the mistreatment of women. And then they pull the cover off and go, that's your Bible. Okay? It's when you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman, and you're attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home. Have her shave her head, trim her nails, put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. You're like, look at that. That's equal treatment of women? Take a woman out of warfare, shave her head, trim her nails, take her clothes off? Look at what your Bible has to say. Before I dig into this particular text, I want to make another claim. I believe that the heart of most of our problems and the world's problems with the Bible has a lot less to do with the reliability of texts like I started with, and a lot more to do with certain perceptions and doubts and fears about the character and nature of this God that our Bible represents. Can we trust him? Can we trust a God that would give commands like that to his people? But as I said before, 
From cover to cover, the message of the Bible, when you read it all in context, is a message of a God of love who created and designed human life simply so that we would have the opportunity to know who he truly is. And as we dig into this claim that the Bible is not sexist, when we look at texts like that, we have to remember that the Bible paints an accurate description of human history and human nature. What do I mean by that? There definitely are sexist, misogynistic, horrifying stories that happen in the Bible. And as Christians, I think we have to stand up and go, there are stories in there that are very problematic. And we do find a lot of them in the Old Testament. But once again, the Old Testament and the entire Bible gives a history of humanity trying to get to know God. So the Bible doesn't condone these things. They're recorded as lessons for humanity to show how destructive things like polygamy, slavery, prostitution, marital deception, adultery, and rape, all in the Bible, all stories recorded, they're recorded to show us how destructive they always have been to relationships and how destructive they always will be, which is why we need a Savior, which is why we need Jesus Christ to come in and show us what real relationship looks like, what redemption looks like. Does that make sense? So they are in the Bible. We can't ignore them. We can't say the Bible doesn't say anything questionable. It has lots of questionable things in it, but it's to record how destructive they are. And maybe, maybe just in my thinking, but it encourages my heart a little bit. If the Bible was the land of fairy tales where everything always went out right and people walked uprightly all the time, I'd be reading it going, I'm never going to get to God. All these people of God, they never made mistakes. They make horrifying mistakes sometimes, and yet God redeems it every time. The God of the Bible has always disproved of all types of injustice, though. Between male and female, slaves and free, it's the story of redemption. I, the Lord, love justice. I, the Lord, change not. It's said again and again of our God. And so I do want to make the claim from a few more passages in the Old and the New Testament that the Bible always has been and always will be cutting edge for the treatment of women. Cutting edge. Let's look just in the Old Testament at a few examples. First off, right in Genesis we see in the creation story that God made man in his image and then it repeats itself male and female he made them we take this for granted if you've grown up within a christian worldview or you've heard those words a thousand times but in any ancient near east culture and in any culture that believed in a god men Yes, maybe being made in the image of God, but that our Bible from the very beginning takes the time to say it's not by accident. It's something specific that in the image of God were created that we need both males and females to see the beautiful image of God. That had never been heard of before. Any other God that created mankind, men and female, equally important, equally showing something of the very image of the divine Famous commentator Matthew Henry put it this way about the creation, and I love this. He said the reason why, maybe, God records that Eve came out of the rib of Adam was that she didn't come out of the head to dominate or out of the feet to be walked on, but out of the side 
to walk side by side, hand by hand, showing us something of the true equality and value of God that he speaks on every person. I think that's beautiful. What about in the Ten Commandments? We see honor your father and your mother. Once again, we take that for granted and think, well, that's not a big statement. In any ancient Near East family, a mother that had a son because women were not valued, they were not equal, the sons didn't have to respect their mothers. The sons could treat their mothers however they wanted. The fact that Yahweh says you are to honor your father and your mother equally as your parents, that was a shocker in ancient Near East culture, speaking loads of God's value of women. There's stories highlighted of people like Leah and Hannah in the Bible, barren women that wouldn't have been mentioned in any history. They were unloved and unranked in society. And yet again and again, there's stories to remind us that Yahweh looked favorable upon them because of who they were intrinsically by value. And if we push into the rest of Deuteronomy, as I put up there already, if we frame that warfare passage, what does it go on to say? You can read it for yourself, but basically it goes on to say, God is setting up what the United Nations has tried to set up for years, just warfare, protection for civilians that were not part of it. Any other ancient Near East culture would have come upon a woman after they killed the men of the society and had their way with them in the field and left them and probably done terrible things. Yahweh is saying, you're out at warfare, you see a woman you love, you don't act on it. You bring her back to your house. All those things about trimming the nails, shaving the head, that was common practice in purifying even any bride of the Israelites. They would do that. Hair and nails. You put them through bridal rites for purification like you would any other woman in your own camp that you were betrothed to. You give a month for what? For grieving? For what the woman has lost? And a month for you to cool off as a man so you make sure it wasn't just in the heat of battle that you wanted her. And if in a month when she has been purified, when she's had to grieve, when you are sure that you want to claim her as a wife and make a covenant to her, then take her into your house and treat her just like any of your other wives. And if you change your mind, let her go, not as a slave. That would have been unthinkable. These are amazing high standards. We must read scriptures in context. Let's move on to New Testament life. Let's move on to understanding what the New Testament speaks. Well, to be able to do that, we have to look into what was life like for your average Greco-Roman woman? Because you know what? It's really easy to read a lot of stories in the New Testament about women and take them for granted. Once again, through our cultural lens right now. So I want to give you a little peek into what life was like for women in the time of the writing of the New Testament. Did you know that Aristotle, who praised relationship and community and friendship as the bond for keeping societies together, said that the relationship between men is the most important thing for society. The relationship between a husband and a wife was that to a ruler and a ruled, or a king and his subject. Interesting. Not quite equal in Greco-Roman world. In Athenian law, women could not own property. They couldn't make economic transaction. A woman's testimony didn't have any legal standing in court. And the confinement of women inside a house was seen as a social and ethical ideal. It was a matter of pride for Jewish and Greek merchants of the time to have their wives secluded as conspicuously and expensively as possible. It was a show of their wealth and their fame. 
Men kept their wives under lock and key. They had the social status of a slave. They weren't allowed to leave the house. They were not allowed to um, eat or interact with male guests. They had to have escorts if they did get outside the house. And a woman had to retire to her quarters if any men came inside the house. They weren't allowed to be educated. And when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. Women in all way in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world were considered inferior to men. Remember that picture now as we revisit some of the stories that we see in the New Testament. And for me, this is the most evidence. What we see of Jesus, what we see in the New Testament, is the ultimate evidence for how God feels towards women. Christianity is not sexist at all. You see, Jesus broke every single religious box that men, society, women, the law tried to put him in. He constantly flipped every stereotype on its head. Everybody that was too poor, too immoral, the wrong gender, the wrong race. He went out of his way to show the message of God. What I'm showing you of who God really is, is this is good news for you. I am love for you. You are included. You are not excluded. No matter what anyone or you yourself has said over your life. Where do we see it in the New Testament specifically for this case of sexism? John chapter 4. We see the story of the Samaritan woman. I don't know if you ever noticed, but she's the first person in the gospel of John to find out the true identity of Jesus Christ. He doesn't hide his identity in a parable. She says, I know one day the Messiah will come. And he looks at her and goes, I'm here. Want a a sign? Like, I'm here. This is me. That's amazing. A woman he first reveals himself to. Don't know if you knew that Jesus actually had female disciples. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna are listed in disciples that traveled around with him. Jesus also permitted women to be theological students. Remember I just told you women weren't allowed to speak? They weren't allowed to be educated? They weren't allowed to hold property? Where do I get this from? You know that story of Mary and Martha? which is commonly retold as Martha doing chores and Mary, you know, sitting and chilling with Jesus. Well, that whole phrase that she sat at Jesus' feet is exactly the same term that Paul talks about with his education. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was commonly known in that era to signify a seminarian. You only sat at the feet of a rabbi if you were one of their regular students being trained to follow in his ministry. So he's going, you can be educated. You can actually be a religious leader. Jesus speaks about God in female terms. In Luke chapter 13, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that I could gather you to my breast like a mother hen. In Luke chapter 15, the famous story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son The lost coin, Jesus portrays God the Father, Yahweh himself, as down on his hands and knees as an old woman, searching and cleaning throughout the house for the coin. You're going, you're really blowing that out of proportion. Oh, no. Pharisees would have considered that blaspheme of the highest order to speak about God as a female. And yet Jesus is giving us this picture. And possibly the biggest evidence that we have of how God feels towards women... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle moment for our Christianity. Paul says without it, we don't have any faith. 
Who did Jesus choose to reveal himself first to? The first eyewitness? They're women. You think he forgot that their testimony wasn't valid in the court of law? Because it was just by accident? Or was it part of God's eternal plan to go? I'm making all things new. I'm reversing everything you always thought, even down to the very heart of society. Jesus is the ultimate evidence we have for how God feels towards women. Dorothy Sayers, she was a writer during the time of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. She was a woman that hung out with the Inkling group, if you've done any studies of kind of literature in Oxford at that time. And you know what? She was rare among women because she hung out in a group of male writers and philosophers and she was recognized by them and written to but many other people of her day didn't consider her as intelligent as relevant she wrote this she said women had never known a man like this man and there's never been such another who took their questions and arguments seriously who never mapped out their sphere for them i love this never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female Both in his teaching and in his activities, Jesus reached out to women as persons who were equally worthy as men in his saving activity. And I would make the case today that only the message of Jesus and thence only the Christian worldview can do this. Because his and our good news message is not one of religion. It's not one of morality. It's one based on relationship. Jesus defined a new way for us all to identify, a new way for us all to be sure of our value and significance. Not by our race, not by our gender, not by just our behavior, not by what society says of us, not by even what well-meaning religious leaders say of us, but by relationship to him. What he says, our father, our creator, the lover of our souls who says, you are mine, I am yours, I love you, and I have crossed the great divide. Come to this world to prove that love to you again and again. So why do so many doubt that this is true of the Bible? Why do so many doubt that this is true of our own hearts? I'll answer the Bible question first and then maybe of our own hearts. Well, is it all Paul's fault in Scripture? Throw that bomb in there just at the end for fun. You can write on those questions and then leave it to the pastoral staff to answer this week. It's wonderful. Normally I have to answer questions afterwards. This is wonderful. Um, was it all Paul's fault? My colleague and good friend, um, Amy Ewing, who I know is a good friend of this congregation as well, she writes in her book, Is the Bible Intolerant? The Apostle Paul, who's often demonized as being sexist, in fact, freely ministered alongside women. And the two passages in his writings, which are sometimes taken as blanket denial of female ministry, need to be seen in this broader perspective. Let me just give you a few food for thought uh, moments out of the Bible of a broader perspective, and you could do further study later if you want. Paul freely worked and ministered and spoke about women that were mentors and leaders, not only in his own life, but in the body of Christ. Where do we see that? If you want to take some notes and look it up for yourself later. Women were leaders in the early church. We see Priscilla named many times, specifically in Acts 18. And then she's mentioned again in Romans 16. In fact, Romans 16 is chock full. It's only a few verses um, of women. Phoebe was known as a patroness and a deacon in Centria. Um, She is Um, noted as this word prostasis, which actually means leader, ruler, or governor of a temple. Those are high words that she's used of. There's even an apostle 
Junia, which up until the 13th and 15th century, it was a gender neutral name, but one kind of like Ashley or Lindsay that depending on the decade has been used more for males or more for females. In the time of the New Testament and actually all the way up to the 13th and 15th century, that gender neutral name was always a woman's name. And that was an apostle in the church of God. Paul ministered, welcomed, spoke of many women and encouraged them in his midst. And so we need to take some of the difficult subjects and just put them in a full perspective when we are looking at them, when we are asking them hard questions. I'm not saying don't ask the Bible hard questions. We need to, to build our own faith. But he's also the one that wrote Galatians 3.26. In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God. There's neither Jew or Gentile. There's not slave or free. There's not male and female. You're all one in Christ. So as I end today, I want to revisit that question. Can I trust the God of the Bible? Even if we clear up questions of reliability, relevance, the good news and affirm it, can we trust that the Bible has good news for our hearts today? This is the most important question for you to answer. Because by how you answer this will be how you defend it and how you spread this good news in your world. To answer this question, I want to come back, yes, again, to different words from the Apostle Paul. To talk about what Jesus says to our hearts today, regardless of if you're male or female, regardless of if you have been hurt by well-meaning Christian leaders or people honestly trying to follow, I believe, a high view of Scripture. Or whether you've let society confuse you about confidence in the Word of God and what God has to say. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 2, 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. He came, Jesus came, and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And that's what Jesus came to show us. He came to clear up the questions of our hearts, the question of humanity's hearts, the question of our world's hearts. Is this God real and is he really for me? It sounds like incredibly good news to say Jesus proves to us not only that God is there, but also that God is loving and also that God is forgiving. But there's many, maybe inside our walls of the church and outside that go, that sounds good, but I know he doesn't want me. I know that good news isn't good enough for me because of you fill in the blank. Maybe it's not sexism for you. Maybe you know what your neighbor's neighbor's wrestling with or you know what your heart is wrestling with. But what Jesus came to show us and to prove is that there is absolutely no person who is off limits from God's love. There is absolutely no person who is excluded from this offer of relationship with God. We are all God's children. Those that seem and have always been very near and those that look far away. And look like foreigners. And maybe have been treated by foreigners. By the body of Christ or through history. Or even by our own negligence. Sometime. 
We are welcomed into relationship with God who loves us just as we are, sees us just as we are, and speaks this message of love, significance, and value to finally put to peace the rage of the storm that our lives, our culture, and history has kicked up in our hearts. It's a message that says you don't have to do anything to be accepted or noticed. Just accept what he says about you that he's always noticed you, that you've never been pushed out. It'll speak peace to you. It'll empower you to speak peace to your world. So how about it today? Will you trust him? Will you trust him afresh if you've doubted it for your own heart? Will you trust him for the first time? Maybe you are here for the first time because you heard over the summer this church is going to look at some of these questions. Maybe there's someone here that needs to trust that God is for you for the first time. Hear his message. Or maybe you just need to trust it afresh that he's for our world. Confidently, winsomely, the sweetheart church that you are, show, let me clear away your doubt. I know God's for you because he's for me. Him being for me doesn't mean, oh, well, he's for me and not for you. No, that makes me more sure you're invited to. So thank you for listening. If you fall into any of those categories today that you need to trust him afresh, why don't you take a moment just at the end, maybe when you get home, to say, I'm sorry. Sorry, God, that I've judged you by what society has said or how I felt I've been treated. And believe that you're for me. Come and speak your identity and your value and your welcome over my heart again. Set me free to speak that in my world. Watch what happens in your life. And watch what happens in your community when you do that. God bless you, Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for having me.